Before we jump into the episode, I have to tell you about the newly renovated Sub-Zero Wolf and Cove showroom in Scottsdale. They've partnered with over 16 local designers and cabinet companies, of which I know most of them. I can say that this really helps give the immersive experience for anybody wanting to visualize their future kitchen. It's a place to start, experience, and bring your vision to life. Product experts assist you throughout the entire project, view an array of options, and see them in full-size kitchen vignettes. Turn knobs, open drawers, ignite flames, determine the best fit for you. Chef-led demonstrations provide the opportunity to ask questions of the experts that use them every day. Schedule your appointment at subzero-wolf.com backslash Scottsdale, or you can call 480-921-0900. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Al Trellis. Welcome, Al. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm very excited to have you, Al. So Al is building extraordinaire. He's president of Home Builder Network. Uh, I could probably spend about 10 minutes with all of the accolation and uh, credits to you. You've been a huge instrument uh, in the building industry for many years. You consult people all over the country. I met you at my Builder 20. Uh, just a quick backstory. It's pretty neat that you had spoken in an article. John Witt had sent you a letter. You know, This is years ago. You consult him. You meet the Cunninghams in California. And so you've had a huge imprint on my Builder 20, which has had an imprint on me. So for that, I thank you. And I'm excited uh, with your busy schedule that you've made time today, Al. My pleasure. So, so let's start here because you have so much information. I want to try to condense as much as we can. You know, I, I spent a lot of time for any entrepreneur listening to this. You know, company culture is something we speak about, right? The tactics and strategies you've seen and consulted. You know, how important is company culture? How have you seen that make or break companies throughout your career? So I think, I believe culture is extremely important. And I think about my 42 home building clients and the ones with the best cultures are the most successful and the ones that I enjoy working with the most. And the ones when I visit, I think the employees are the happiest and I don't get phone calls about dealing with all kinds of crisis situations. So I think culture matters. And I think that um, you know the, the way you get those cultures is really heavily related to leadership skills. Companies with great cultures typically have great leaders. It's, it's really that simple. It's very hard to have a great culture if you don't know how to be a good leader of your company. I, I love that perspective because I think it's easy to sit here and you can, uh, I, you know, you can talk about, you know, company outings or, you know, these little things that happen, but to your point is leadership, right? Because you said culture matters that the ones that are successful don't have the crisis, right? And essentially, to be a good business, you should be operating efficiently outside of crisis mode. Yeah, when, when you know, I have a lot of people. My some of my clients through the years will say things like, "Well, I, I never go away for more than a week at a time because you know I'm worried that everything's going to fall apart." And I'm like, "Then that's not an <laughs> organization. I mean, you should be able to be confident that you go to the hospital for a month and everything's going to keep right on rolling. So if it's not." If that's not the case, let's fix it so it is the case. So it, it, it's one thing to think about, okay, going on vacation, everything's going to fall bar, uh, apart. I have to work harder before I leave, harder when I get back to catch up. What, what are some maybe things that you've seen companies implement You know, when you think about systems and strategy to help that lapse, right? To show that leadership, to show that organization uh, you know, for the end result of the client. So a, a lot of it is about uh, identifying the responsibilities of a given job, and then having a plan in place that says who else in the company can do that job 
And if that person's not here for a week or 10 days or a month, who's responsible for that? And not only are they responsible, but who's capable of doing it at an acceptable level? I don't expect it to be the same level as the person who's not there, but I expect it to be above the bar of what I call acceptable. That's, that's what's It doesn't have to be excellent. It just has to be exceptional. We'll wait for the guy to come back to get excellent. I love that perspective because essentially you can't stop this train on the tracks and come to a dead stop. You have to keep it moving even if it's at a slower pace. I'll give a quick example, Al, and I was exposed. You know, I, I've uh, trying to take great pride in like building systems and, you know, organization in our company. I feel that over the last, you know, 10 years we've been in business, we've come a long way. However, we had an issue where, uh, you know, my controller, um, she, uh, you know, expected a baby, super excited. There were some complications. So unexpectedly, you know, she uh, was out of communication early, right? And we had a plan in place that, hey, here's how we're going to cover this while she's out on maternity leave. Because she ended up leaving a couple months early because of, and, and fortunately, everyone's fine. Baby's doing great. But, but because of, I was exposed, right? I saw that I didn't have a plan in place of, you know, payroll and monthly billings. And so we've had to scramble because I didn't have that aspect of my business in line. And I saw firsthand now to what you're speaking of, how we can become exposed by not having people understand who they need to be accountable to and then what the role would be to at least cover while someone's out. So my client will remain nameless, but I was with a client uh, two weeks ago. Um, And fairly not too far from the time I spoke to your 20 club. And he has a very valuable employee there in the design part of his business. And the question, and he's, he's not a kid anymore. And then I have another guy last week who also has a design guy in his business. And the question is, what happens when those guys decide they don't want to work anymore or something happens to them? Because it's a design-build business. And if you take away the design from a design-build business, we don't have a design-build business anymore. And yeah. We, so we speak to talk about yeah. some strategies to deal with it. Yeah. So, so speak to that. I mean, you work with the verse, you know, a, a wide array of contractors, design, build, strictly build, strictly, uh, I would imagine probably not many that are strictly design. You know, how does that strategy change for you as a consultant, as you're thinking about how they're setting up their business to your point, design, build, like that's a big aspect of the business. And if we don't have that, we're going to be, you know, in a tough situation. So for, you know, I, I pride myself as a consultant coach. I pride myself on I'm not a one-size-fits-all guy. And there are, there are consultants around who are basically one-size-fits-all. You know, they got an answer, and they're going to make your problem fit their answer. And my, my belief is it's my job to fix, make the answer fit your problem. And so um, because I've been doing this for 50 years, I've, you know, and I started with custom builders. I was a custom builder for a while. Um, I've converted a lot of my custom builders to production builders, semi-custom builders, portfolio builders. I'm very big on product. I'm very big on land. I think those are at the heart of a real builder operation. But I look at every builder and ask, which are the weakest parts of your business? And that's what we got to work on first. So if you're a design build, then you got to have a strong design piece. If you're a portfolio builder, you got to have a good portfolio. If you're a production builder, we got to have all the, all the details really narrowed down perfectly because we don't want to make changes as we go. So a lot of it depends on 
who you are and what you're trying to do. And that's what I meant about the you know, one size doesn't fit all. I, I have told different builders a week apart to do exactly the opposite thing, depending on who they are, where they are, and what they do. So when you say the weakest part of your business, how are you identifying that? Especially you coming in as a consultant, I would imagine with your years of experience, it's fairly easy to do to some extent, but you know, how do you identify where they're really struggling without being there day to day? So we have, there are 15 basic functions to a home building business. There are 15 things you've got to do, right? Starting with vision and planning, leadership, administration, product development, land acquisition and or development, right? Construction, accounting, finance, warranty, you know, there's a whole bunch, there's 15 of them. So I have a little questionnaire and we got to go through and we talk about the different ones. And when I, when I first meet them, once I know who they are, this is going to sound arrogant, but I kind of know for each one of them, the two or three that they're not good at. And, and by the way, for most people, where do you think they want to spend their time? Do they want to spend their time on the ones that they're not good at? No, they want me to go right away to the things that they're good at so they can show me how good they do those things. And I'm like, I don't want, I know your plans are great. I want to talk about your land development that always takes four months longer than it's supposed to. I want to talk about your pricing that usually sucks. I want to talk about that stuff with you. Now with the next guy, I don't want to talk about your pricing. Your pricing is great. I want to talk about your product. So the, the three, you know, um, pricing and product and planning a lot of people talk about the P's, right? But, but again, if you think about the functions and you think about what people do well, if you do something well, it's very good to make it better, but that's not what makes or breaks us. What makes or breaks us as a company are the things we don't do well enough to be over the threshold. Once you're over the threshold of good, excellent is great, but being the difference between good and excellent doesn't make you succeed. The difference between not being good and being good at something is what makes you succeed. The, the things that pull I mean, you down are the categories that are bad, not how good you do the ones that are good. I love that you share that. How, how difficult when you find someone that says, okay, and, and we understand the analogy of you know a weak link, right? How it can just snap and it can essentially to your, the bottom falls out of a company, right? And that's the right. catastrophic difference of, good to excellent as opposed to bad to good. You know, do you find, I, I would imagine that most of your clients are coming to you and saying, hey, Al, look, they really in, intently are wanting to change. They want to discover, is it ever resistant from the leadership side or difficult where they push back? Um, have, you, have you ever had those conflicts as your All consulting companies throughout your Every years? Every day of my life. <laughs> so because I would imagine for us, I'm dealing with difficult clients at a time, but how are you managing that? You know, managing that experience with, with your clients? So most of my clients have been my clients for quite a while. Some of them 30 years. And the ones who haven't have been referred to me by people who have been with me for a while. So I start off when I first meet them by saying, now look, you don't have to do everything I say, but you got to listen to everything I say. And then if you don't agree with me, you got to convince me why it's not applicable to you or why you're right and I'm wrong. But why don't we start with the premise that you hired me because I know as much or more than you do about this particular thing? And so let's start with that premise. 
So if I say, I think that you should do this and you don't think so, tell me why. And then I'll explain to you why I don't agree with you. Or, or uh, you say, you know what? Based on that, maybe in your circumstances, you're right. Let's not do that. But a lot of times I go like, work with me. Help, help me here. Try it for me. Let, let's see if it works. Give, it, give me a break, you know? That's a lot of so times when, I have to like get them to try. I, I'm a big believer in beta testing. I'm a big believer in let's do it over here in this subdivision. See if I'm right. Let's do it with this model. See if you I tell you your dining rooms are too small. Let's build this model here with the bigger dining room. See if we get a better reaction over here. Then if we do, maybe we'll try it some other places. And most of the time I'm right. I love not that. always. Not always. But like in in um there's often a, we often have a debate about master ups and master downs. There are certain markets where the master bedroom historically is always on the main floor. But we have other markets where we sell a lot of houses where the master bedroom's upstairs. I live in one. The house I'm talking to you from, the master bedroom is on the second floor. Get a better view of the golf course that way. So <laughs> now that I'm a little older, I'm like, say to my wife, you know, maybe we should move to a house with the master on the main, right? But, but the reality is a lot of my builders resist. They say, you can't sell a master up in this market. And sometimes I say, you're probably right. But sometimes I say, well, isn't the biggest builder in your market so-and-so? Yeah. And I, I have a statistic here that says last year, 52% of what they sold was master up. So don't tell me that no one will buy it. Right? Now, maybe your buyers are more wealthy. They're older. Maybe convince me that's what you're talking about. But if you're going to start with the premise, I can't sell those in this market, I say, beep, I think that's a lie. So, and I, I believe in confronting my clients. My, my clients, I have a very confrontational consulting style. It's not for everybody. You know, I've, I've, I've had clients that after a couple of visits, I go like, I don't want to waste your money and I don't want you to waste my time. This, this ain't going to work. But if you want, I always tell people, if you want someone to fly in on the plane, pay them a lot of money, pat you on the back and tell you you're doing a great job, go get somebody else because that ain't me. <laughs> My job is to tell you what you do wrong. I'll, I'll tell you the things you're doing right because everyone needs reinforcement. We'll talk about the things you're doing pretty well and how I think you could do them a little better. But I want to focus on the things that you don't do that well. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it, I'm sorry, but I think that's why you hired me. Well, this is why I want to bring you on because the first night at dinner when you came to speak to our Builder 20 and Patrick Cunningham with CNC says, Brad, why don't you come sit over here? And immediately I was sitting across from you and I was in line of sight for Al, right? And you're just go, you know, Brad, are you thinking about this? Are you doing this? And it was constant. And I love that, right? Because the reality is if, if we want to be better. You have to challenge yourself. You have to be accountable. And essentially, Al, that's what you're saying. And what I love the example you gave about just the master suite is you're coming to someone with research. You have data, right? You've backed this up. And what I've seen, like, and, and I'll go to the design world, some of the design build contractors, some of the architects and designers are real successful. They travel, right? They're going to Parade of Homes in Utah, even though I'm based in Arizona. They're they're going to these different aspects and they're seeing, well, what success are people having around the country? How am I going to implement that here? And so even though you may come with data, on us on our own, we should be doing our own networking. We should be networking with other builders and understand what they're charging and how what, what's speaking to the clients. I mean, how, how important is that for us as 
builders just to look outside of our own little bubble. Well, not only outside of your bubble in home building, but I pride myself. I mean, this is one of the great things I pride myself on. I look at every industry every day that I touch to see what I can learn. I learned how to bundle options from value meals. I, I didn't learn that from builders. I learned that from McDonald's. <laughs> I learned about speed from FedEx. Right? I even wrote a program called Lessons from the Real World that talks about the things that home builders need to learn from other industries. By the way, I helped start the 20 Club. The 20 Clubs were started when I was chairman of the Custom Builder Committee. Where do you think the 20 Clubs came from? They came from the automotive industry, where the dealers, all the automotive dealers, have had 20 Clubs 20 years before we did. So... So how did you find that? And I know, and I wanted to talk to you about this, about just the Builder 20, because I've spoken about this on the podcast. You know, how did you even become aware of what the auto industry was doing? There was a builder on the committee. His name was Alan Brandt from Denver, Colorado. He brought it up. We all thought that was a great idea. We said, we're going to do that in the, in the home builders. And we, we never even went to the board of directors and got permission. We just did it. And a lot of times it's just better to do it and get permission later. And so um, we started the 20 clubs. When we finally brought it to NHP, they thought it was a good idea, became a big deal, and away we went. Now, comprehensively, I know that you spoke about the main goal. Like, what is the main goal? I mean, about the Build a 20, and, and you brought this up at ours when you were speaking, you know, the first day of our event about, you know, the importance of, you know, coming up with new content and using all the like minded we have here nationally. Like, how can we make big changes? Yeah, so the, the real purpose of something like a 20 club, and we've got, like sometimes I will have a, I've had three meetings for my clients. All my clients come to a city. We did it once at Kohler. We did it once at Baltimore by my office. I forget where the other one was. And we, we bring the builders there. Just, and I'll have an agenda. We're going to talk about these, for this hour, we're going to talk about insurance. And I got a bunch of questions. Start talking. And each builder says, I hate insurance, or I love insurance, or I have trouble getting insurance, or I pay too much for my insurance, or I can't get it. Or And then we have a dialogue. We'll have a roundtable where people can bring up any subject they want, and everyone else at the roundtable will respond to it. So there, my builders are pretty diverse in both price, location, um, things like that. But they will. I want other people's opinions. I always want to hear what other people have to say, unless I unless they've proven to me that you know, their opinion is useless. And there are people in this world who've proven that to all of us that they have nothing to tell us. There aren't a lot of those people, but there are some of them. And it's like, but for most people, there's something that they can contribute. And maybe that's arrogant for me to say that some people have nothing to contribute. But I really believe particularly on certain subjects. It's like when the customer says to you, you know, I was talking to my dentist and he told me that this is the way I should design the kitchen. And I'm like, dude, I don't care what your dentist said about the way to design the kitchen. <laughs> That's the last guy I care about what he thinks about the kitchen. Now tell me your dentist talked about what sink we should use and maybe that's got some relevance. But <laughs> it's like, 
I often dis. My wife is a realtor, a very good one, but I often discount what realtors tell me because a lot of times they tell me the last thing they heard, or they or they unconsciously bring their own prejudices into what they tell. They tell me this is what people like, but sometimes that's not true. It's what they like, and they like to believe that everybody likes what they like, but that may not necessarily be true. It may be true or not. Depends on the who told me. There are realtors who tell me stuff, and I listen really closely. And there are people, realtors, that tell me stuff, and it goes in one ear and out the other. Now, that's my own prejudice. I get it. By the way, great leaders always understand their own biases and account for them. But the person I'm talking about, I already accounted for that bias, and I'm convinced I can let it go in one ear and out the other. Well, I love that you shared that and brought this back to leadership because what's interesting about that real estate example, Al, is that when you say, um, you know, I think inherently as humans, we kind of have our own perspective of the world, whatever that is. I mean, on, on any vast array of topics, you know, from, from where we grew up time. to our culture. Yeah. I mean, a- every topic, we have our own perception. That's our reality because that's what we've been exposed to or our friend base are, you know, that a lot of us can be comfortable in. Same thing to business, right? As you coming back to the leadership side, I may have prejudice in my company, how I'm managing things or doing things or dictating things because I think that's how I was taught or how I, when I was employed, this is what I wanted. And this is why it's really important that you mentioned the versatility and exposure to other markets, other leadership. If I'm you know, internally trying to evaluate my leadership as a business owner, entrepreneur, and I don't have the opportunity to hire you, Al, and I know that you have you're booked. I mean, we could talk about how crazy your schedule is and how automated it is, which is pretty amazing. We'll get to later in the discussion. But where can people learn about leadership? How can they really diagnose where their weaknesses are as a leader, as a company? You know, what resources are out there inside and outside the industry? So I recommend that everybody read books about leadership. Um, if there is good, there's some videos that are decent about leadership. I have an article that I wrote about leadership. Anybody's at the end, I'll give you the address. Anybody's welcome to get it. Um, I, I, I went over those seven key things at, at the 20 club meeting and everybody seemed to sort of appreciate that. Um, I actually like to read quotes about leadership. Um, I love quotes. I love to read quotes. I love to write about quotes because when you, um, when you think deeply about what someone said that has been memorialized, been memorialized for a reason. And so you want to find the fundamental truths in that quote, but you also want to look uh, even deeper in that quote. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to um, open up something real quickly here for us. Give me a split second. And, yeah, of course. Um, and, and I love as you're doing that, and I'll, I'll just speak to this, Al, what's interesting is there are quotes that have stuck out to me right in my career. And one that uh, anyone's who's listening to this podcast is probably tired of me saying, it's like, I was taught chase experience, not money. Right. And again, a simple quote, but as you dive into that and you think about just a sales process as a builder, that's not even related. This is me owning a company. There's, there's an advantage to me building a home in a community that may be a lost leader. You know, in sales, you think about Costco, they have their chicken, they don't make money, but everyone goes in and buys a chicken. Then while they're there, they're buying other things. And so you have these lost leaders that bring in traffic or expose you to different networks. And, you know, it may not be at the time, you know, that's why someone's go to college, right? You're chasing that experience. It's costing you money, but ideally it'll catapult you to the next chapter of life. And 
you know there's a lot of truth in that. So, you know, just want to stage that as you're you're looking this up, Al. Right. So I have a book that I'm writing um, that's a, that talks about six or seven different subjects and takes quotes. And then I, I write about those quotes. What do I think this guy's trying to say? And what does it really mean? So under leadership and teamwork, I have this quote from Alexander the Great. An army of sheep led by a lion is better than an army of lions led by a sheep. Right? And so I'm like, what does that mean? So here's what I wrote. This quote is fabulous because it says everything that needs to be said about leadership in 19 words. And so the question that anyone who manages or employs others must ask are, number one, do I act more like a lion, more like someone willing to take a risk or press an issue, or do I hesitate at critical moments, waffle on questions that are really clear when measured against our core values, and fail to be the example that my subordinates need to help them be better and do better? Number two, am I the leader that my company needs and deserves? Do I take the time to explain the situation to my subordinates and offer praise as well as criticism? Number three, do I understand my own biases and work to overcome them to be as fair and equitable as I can? Number four, am I flexible, patient, and understanding as I want my coworkers to be? And number five, do I truly set a good example? So there's there's when I read a quote, I force myself to use that quote to make me think about things, right? For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build a Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build a Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops You know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildatrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. 
They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. Now with that, that's interesting. I mean, just a perspective there from one quote out, how you're breaking this down. And, and I want to come back to this because when you said understand your own biases, uh, it, it's a lot more difficult than said, right? To identify those biases and then work to bring those back. How have you done that? Because I'd imagine you have anyone without consulting others, you yourself, how have you worked internally just on understanding your biases and then account for that? So I studied the martial arts for about 15 years um, to teach myself patience. And I took up fishing to teach myself patience. And both of those things together have made me much more patient than I used to be even though I would still say that I'm about a, about a six on the patient scale. But I used to be a two. <laughs> and so um, you, you learn to identify the things that you know. You, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to look in the mirror and be really honest. That, that self-honesty is a big deal. If you're, if you're really into self-improvement, then you have to be into self-honesty, right? And so... And then, and then the other thing is, and I write a lot about improvement and about knowledge and about education. A lot of it is really striving to be better tomorrow than you are today. I wake up every day, and at the end of the day, I try to say, was I better? To, did I, what did I learn today that made me a better person, a, a more knowledgeable advisor, a better husband, what, whatever, a better grandfather? What did I do that made me better? I think if you constantly struggle, and stress that you're trying to be better, to improve yourself, that's the key to the whole deal. And that starts with an honest assessment of your own weaknesses. You know, there's, here's, another quote. That Go here's ahead. another quote that about leadership I think would be interesting that your audience might like, right? It goes, a man who wants to lead the orchestra must turn his back on the crowd. What, what, the, what does that mean, right? So you, you read that quote and you go, oh, that's kind of, what does that mean? So here, here's what I wrote. Many of those who history credits with accomplishing much did so by making difficult, unpopular choices. They ignored at their own peril the popular wisdom and predominant thinking of the times and envisioned a course of action well beyond the ability of most others to see. Turning your back on the crowd is not easy, but the noise of the crowd is most often just noise. Loud isn't a synonym for wise, and the vast majority of those with something to say lack a true understanding of the facts surrounding most decision-making. Great leaders know that, like the conductor, the focus of their efforts is not on the coordination of the people and successes of the job in front of them. It, it, it's not on the approval of the audience behind them. It's on the focus of the efforts of the 
coordination of the people in front of them. If the job is done correctly and the product or decision is a good one, the approval of those who really matter will automatically follow. So, again, what is leadership? Leadership is knowing when to turn your back on the crowd. Leadership is knowing when to be strong and when to be patient. It's knowing who to push and who to convince. It's knowing who to accept the way they are and who to try to change. Those are, the, those are all the aspects of leadership that I like to talk about when I talk about leadership. I love that example. I, I remember hearing years back, you know, that being able to be sturdy despite where the winds are blowing. I mean, winds can be blown in any direction. And if you're just waving around with the winds, you're just going to be pulled to and fro with no direction, right? But to your right. point, like, this is what's really hard is, you know, sometimes going against the popular choice, but again, you know, not turning your back on those coordinating the efforts, right? Which is very applicable to us as builders and in the design community. Um, I love that at the end of the day. When you learn from other industries, one of the most interesting is to read the story of Boeing. Boeing bet the company three times on an airplane, right? They, They bet the whole company on the 747. They bet the whole company again on this. I mean, they have bet the company three different times on a course of action that not everybody agreed was the right course of action. Now, let's take another company that's not here anymore. Who was the number one competitor of Sears for many years? I actually don't know. (laughs) But I know Sears very well. I remember as a kid, Sears, so yes. But even Sears struggles. Right? Sears Sears has had a tough because in the end it's about adaptation. And so just because you were a great company in eighteen ninety to nineteen fifty doesn't mean you're a great company in nineteen eighty to two thousand and twenty. It's about did you change? Did you adapt? Are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to understand what's going on? You know, I'm I'm not a kid. But I think I know more about Excel than a lot of kids. And so that's something I learned in my 50s and 60s. I learned how to be a really good in Excel. So you have to adapt. And if you can't adapt, you're dead. You just don't know it yet. You're the, you're the walking dead. You're the zombie, right? Yeah, that, and, and a lot of us can understand that, especially listening, you know, the the lack of adaptation, especially as technologies change, markets change, communication, client demands, right? What client expectations, you know, all these things evolve. Going back to the leadership side that you shared, again, Al, um, I love that you have this this conscious, you know, um, effort every night that you're thinking about, did I do better in the world today? And are, you know, am I better today than yesterday? And you're thinking about this, it's, it's going to drive your ambition. It's going to drive your entrepreneurship and everything you're doing yourself, Al, as well as for your clients. I had a young mentor, an ecclesiastical leader, and he was similar to an extent. He said, look, every place and everyone should be better because you were there, right? And I remember him speaking about this, that everything should be better because you were there. Okay, well, how does that apply to me? And I remember after we had a break, like you typically do in these long sessions, we go into the restroom, use the restroom, and you know, all of us are washing hands, you know, water splashing over the sink. And he goes in, he washes his hands, he grabs some paper towels and he wipes down the whole sink, right? And he walked out, didn't say anything. And I remember observing that thinking, you know, even at this small 
example that he's sitting here. This sink is better. It's cleaner because he was there. And you think about as a leader, you go on the job site. If I'm going to pick up bottles and throw stuff away, people recognize that. They see it and they're like, hey, if Al's doing it, if Brad's doing it, then I better be conscious of like the job site. And so it can trickle down in so many ways. Oh, leadership by example cannot be overrated. Do, do, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work for people. What works for people <laughs> is, see, look, look at me. If, if, if I'll do it, you can do it. When we, and so, we and, and I love that example. You- I'm sorry. When we go fishing, we have to carry the battery down to the lake. They always go like, you know, let, let the young guys want to carry the battery. And I got to carry the battery at least part of the way to basically say, I appreciate it, but I'm not there yet. You know, I'm not completely gone yet. That, and that <laughs> showing them that willingness makes them even more willing to carry the battery for you. Because they believe you're worthy of carrying. If you said, of course you're going to carry the battery for me. I don't carry my own battery. Then it's like, man, I don't want to carry the battery for that guy. But if you say, I'm willing to help. No, Al, don't help. I'll do it. Okay, I appreciate it. There's a difference. Now, recommendations. When you think about this, because uh, there's no doubt that to be a good leader, you should understand, right? The whole sales funnel, the whole channel of how the batons handed off. You know, ideally, you've worked in different avenues of the company to understand that, to have a good idea of what Al's dealing with on a daily basis or controlling or accounting or, you know, production and coordination, all these things that go into it, purchasing. Um, You know, as a leader, though, and you're thinking, okay, well, my role may be different now. I may be focusing on the business as opposed to in the business. You know, how do you differentiate that or maybe lead even better so then that way you still have motivated people, but they understand Al's working on this. I'm working on this, but cohesively together, this can be more beneficial. So, one of the real jobs of the leader is to encourage and support teamwork. And teamwork is pretty interesting because, like I talked about with the conductor, his job is to make the orchestra work together as a team. And so, the sound that you hear has to be the sound of all of the orchestra with the right instruments emphasized at the right time and those instruments muted when they're supposed to be muted. So the, there are a lot of things that help make teamwork work. One of them is the praise of your fellow teammates. When people believe that the other people on the team appreciate what you do and value what you do, then everybody works harder. That's exactly what has to happen. That's a really good example, Al. And 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 maybe this is really important too, because I know you've been big on, especially when you're speaking to us, is you said, do your employees understand their potential, right? Their future potential in the company. Do they understand how to climb the ladder, right? What does that mean? And it's interesting, you know, how important that is just to have some clarification for your team. How have you seen these real successful companies do that so that that way new hires or people that are there understand the future direction, opportunity they have, you know, for their personal growth? Well, a lot of it's about, so there's, there's growth within um, your job description, and then there's growth in other parts of the company. Let's talk specifically for now about within your job area of expertise. 
Many of my builders, until we have this conversation, they call all of, the, all of their superintendents superintendents or construction managers or builders, whatever. But I've got one builder, he's got 11 of them. They're all called superintendents. I'm like, which one's the best? Bobby. Then why isn't Bobby the senior superintendent? Why does he have the same title as the other guy? Then the builder says the thing that always drives me nuts. Well, titles don't mean anything in our company. In our company, we're not big on titles. And I go, well, maybe you're not big on titles because you own it. But maybe John would like to go <laughs> home and tell his wife that he got a promotion to senior superintendent. Maybe Mary would like to say that she's now the accounting manager instead of an accountant. I mean, what, where do you get off to tell them whether titles are important or not? Here we have a case of your bias and your opinion trying to superimpose on other people. That's a mistake. People, one thing I learned in the Army, people die for a piece of ribbon to wear on their uniform. People drive themselves to the brink of exhaustion to get a piece of cloth to wear on their shoulder that says Ranger or Airborne or whatever, right? Expert infantrymen, combat, whatever. These things, and to this day, 50 years after I was in the Army, when I see someone wearing a uniform, my wife is always looking at me because she's watching me look at their uniform and I'm reading the stuff on their uniform. And then after I'll say to her, you know, that guy, that guy's been in three different wars. So how, how do you know that? So because he has this thing on his chest called a combat infantry badge and it's got, you know, I'm explaining, I can still read that stuff. And I know what it means. And so it's the same thing. If you, if you have senior and superintendents, then you get them a jacket on their jacket. It says senior superintendent. And the other guy's jacket says superintendent. And they walk around and they don't say it, but like, hey, dude, see, my jacket ain't like his jacket. And by the way, when you're a senior superintendent, you get the new truck. The regular superintendent, he gets the old truck. And you get the new phone. He gets the so. Why would I want to do that? Because I want a new truck and I want a new phone and I want my name tag to say those things. Oh, and by the way, he gets more money than you do, right? But it's not only the money; it's also all those other things that have value to people, right? It's when we have certain meetings, only the super the senior superintendents get to talk about whether the new product is going to be buildable. Right? So, because I don't pull the superintendent off of his job, I only pull the senior off because his opinion, he's proven that his opinion has a value. So, now, then you get into a conversation, and, and you alluded to this in one of our correspondences. How do I measure whether that guy should be a senior superintendent or a superintendent? What we have to do is we have to figure out what skills and abilities do I value that I believe bring value to my company that I want him to have in order for me to give him the designation that he's better than the other guy? Does it mean he's able to manage more houses at once? Does it mean he's able to manage an assistant? And, the, and until you prove to me that you can manage an assistant, you're not eligible for... 
What does it mean? What are the requirements to be promoted? That's something we have to develop. What, and we have, to pre, we have to provide the training and education for those who want to advance to make those skill sets attainable to them. Now, some people may tell you, I want more money, I want a better truck, I want a better phone, and I don't want to do any of this stuff. And my answer is, until you do that stuff, you can't get a better truck, you can't get a better phone, and you ain't going to get any more money than the max for the job description that you do. And that job description has a range. One superintendent can make 90 and one can make 100. But when they get to the max of that range, absent cost of living, the only way to make more money is to get a promotion. And in my world, if I make you a super a senior superintendent and one of those requirements is you can run four jobs at once instead of two, as an example, but I don't have four jobs for you, I still pay you because you still have a skill set that I told you I wanted. Whether I ask you to run four this week or not, if I do, I know you can. Therefore, I pay you for that ability to have that on the bench. But I pay the, I pay the backup quarterback the big bucks, whether he plays or not, because I don't know if I need him or not. I, I, I love how you broke this down. There, there's so many angles to take, and I'm going to come back to a couple here uh, as you were sharing that. But I think most importantly, when you're talking about accountability, right, and tracking and expectations, and you mentioned the word value, what's interesting spin on this, Al, uh, in credit to you, is that it's one thing to have like an org, org chart, right, an organizational chart so they understand, you know, the levels of that they can increase to. But essentially what you're saying is, in addition to that, there's requirements, right? There's skill sets, as you said. Very clear. You can run four jobs at once. You have that talent set. You may run two, maybe three, but you have the capability to do four. And this is how you climb the ladder. But more importantly, values, when you said as you're managing that, we, every company should have core values. They should have right a direction of the company. And I remember you saying this, and I took great note of this in, in, in your training, is you said, it's one thing, Brad, for you to understand this or the president, but does everyone on the totem pole understand that? Are you bringing this up in meetings? And then are you tracking that, right? Do people understand the values and are they implementing that, whether it be communication, um, whatever it may be, the company values into their day-to-day leadership practice you know, that are out in the field? Right, and when a situation arises in the company, if something, somebody does something good or bad, we can send that out to everybody as an example of why this was a great example of following our core values or why, even though so-and-so did such-and-such a thing, or without mentioning a name, recently we had a situation like this, and this is how we responded, and I think we didn't do a good job because our core values would have said that we should have done this, not that. And so we reinforced those core values through real examples inside the company of things we do or didn't do, things we say or didn't say. I love that you talked about reinforcing core values. And what's interesting, you know, just to add on to your comment about, uh, you know, there is a sense of pride. And you gave the military example, right? That as people are in the military, they're they're fighting and dying, right, for what they believe in and for these honors and badges and and their belief system. And 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 that's really important. And additionally, what I saw in this was one of my employees I brought on, who's actually my director of operations, and I remember him saying, 
He's like, Brad, not only, you know, there's one thing to have something on your business card that gives you that authority, as you're mentioning now, and you go home and there's pride in that and you want to live up to that. But more importantly, as they're speaking with trade partners, suppliers, clients, you know, by those clients seeing their title, you know, if I have one of my key guys, just superintendent, the client may see that and not really regard their opinion, right? Or their status and getting things done, but they may see directive operations that means something because in their business to understand that there's a title there and that gives them more authority as well. Absolutely. Why everybody at the bank is a vice president. So you feel <laughs> like to talk to a vice president. You know, there might be 42 vice presidents at that bank, but you got to talk to a vice president, man. Let me tell you what the vice president of the bank told me. Okay, great. I, I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so how, you know, as you're working with companies and thinking through this, right, the core values, uh, just from the leadership side, right? From the tracking and managing employees, right? From setting clear expectations, you know, how important should a company really consider core values and where should they have those posted? They should consider it at the, one of their highest priorities. They should be posted everywhere. Some of my clients, it's on the back of their business cards. So we believe in the following five things on the back of everybody's business card. It says the exact same thing. These, these are our core values. Honesty, integrity, you know, straightforwardness, whatever. So I think it's, that's important. I, I gave an example at that club. I have my longest client, 31 years. Um, I, I love these guys. I believe they're probably the best custom builders in America. No offense, Brett. And um, <laughs> they... they have None unbelievable taken. systems and unbelievable values. And like to this day, 30 years later, after I visit them, I always get a handwritten note from one of the brothers about how much we still appreciate all your advice, about how helpful it's been through the years. You know, I thought we had a great meeting. I really want to focus on whatever we, you know, this is the thing we talked about. Get back, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm like, they own me. Those notes own me. I would do anything for them, right? And so, by the way, they're my partners in a new venture now. And so, I mean, I think it's working with people you trust, working with people you believe know what they're doing. In today's world, that ain't easy to find. I mean, I, you know what? We go out, and, and, I think, and I think a lot of Americans believe this. I think a lot of people worldwide believe this. It's like, when did life get so complicated? When did everything get so difficult? I, I don't remember it being this difficult five years ago. Every, every place you call, there's a machine. Every machine wants you to give them 400 answers before they'll let you ask your question. And I'm like, I, I often feel like I want to scream into the phone, I don't work for you. But they want me to answer their questionnaire. I want to go buy a hamburger. I got to go to their screen and punch in the stuff their way. When do I get to be me? And so I think that's anything you can do to help people feel like they're being treated in a personal way. That's a big deal. Right? I mean, all you know, my clients I, I, know I, they can call me at night. They have to because they turn the phone off during the day when I'm with my clients. So, um, you know, I mean, 
all my clients are they always discuss their personal things with me. I'm I'm like 60% business coach, 40% psychologist. I mean, that's what I spend a lot of my time <laughs> helping these guys with. Hey Al, my salespeople are not feeling they're they're not feeling the love, Al. What do I gotta do here? You know, like What's interesting, Al, and, and maybe you could speak to this, and, and, and this may speak for itself, but you mentioned you have a client that you've had for 31 years, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing to say, okay, Al's doing something right for him to be a constant consultant, but it may show even more this builder and why you have such admiration for him is because it would have been easy to say, okay, we're going to bring in Al. He's going to audit our business. We're going to be with him a few years. We have the tools now. We're going to go off to the races. But what they're looking at is a constant you know, desire to change, as you mentioned, to be adjust, right? We, we, 31 years ago, there were no cell phones or internet. I mean, the markets, the, the, the whole industry has completely changed to now with technology. And you mentioned how you've mastered Excel, right? You, like, you haven't given that up, but it just shows that they have this desire and ambition to be better and better. And again, the handwritten notes I love because I still have some clients and like vendors that do this for me. And I'm like, I need to implement this. I think I need to start doing this after this call. But um, but yeah, speak to just maybe their passion to continue to be better and evolve and how that's been a good partnership for you. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of it with a lot of my long, long term clients is they believe that I bring a questioning intellect combined with a lot of industry experience that they believe always helps them look at everything differently. They want to keep looking at everything in a fresh light with outside eyes. You know, you talked about everybody sees the world through their own lenses, right? I like to talk about, I have a, a program on the cover of the program. There's 12 pair of glasses of different colors. And basically the theory is, which glasses are you looking at the world through? And then we'll tell you what the world looks like. And so um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of, If you really believe, and I tell this to my clients, the day I don't contribute is the day I want you to fire me. The day I don't give you more value than you paid me is the day I'm not worth working for you. So obviously after 30 years, they still believe that when they pay me and I come, they got something out of it. Just last week, an issue came up and I've helped, I actually helped the original owners sell to the new owners even though all the all four of them are involved still the i'm the arbiter of a, of something between the old owners and the new owners about money and so they know that i'll be fair and to both parties and put on the table which is an honest interpretation of the facts and if it means that one guy's got to pay more or one guy gets less that's the way it is i'm not going to like put some numbers down there that i don't believe in so that's the that's the thing that you want people to believe that that you are an honest broker and an honest dealer when you give advice or when you um ask somebody to do something for you. So so why the passion Al? I mean, when you think about the passion you have and anyone listening can hear it in your voice just the constant you know demand for accountability and as you mentioned objective opinion and leadership and company culture and values, right? Implementing that. Like, where did this come from? 
it, it has this been natural to you? I mean, it, and especially not even that, but your involvement in the construction industry, which you've been a huge part of for many years now. 51. The, the, <laughs> the, I think it's partly about who you are, but I also think it's about how you were molded. So being, getting a degree in engineering, not just a Bachelor of Science, but a five-year engineering degree, going in the Army. I went to graduate school and felt like the instructors, I thought the classes were poor. I get more, I've taken four courses through Coursera. On This is the classes I've taken through Coursera. Negotiation from Yale. By the way, $49. Negotiation class through Yale, $49. Gamification from the University of Michigan. Model thinking, right? And marketing from Wharton. I've taken all these classes online. My wife's like, why, you know, on the night before, we're in, we're in, we're in, um, where were we? We're in um, Amsterdam, about to get on a ship, and I'm taking the final exam in the hotel room. And my wife's like, why, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Because it's important to me because I said I could do this and I'm going to do it. And I think I've loved houses since I was a little kid. I never, I lived in one house for a year when I was a kid. My dad owned a house for one year. We sold it. We never owned another house again. We only lived in apartments. And I, we, but we looked at houses every weekend, but he never could pull the trigger. And so he never made enough money. We never, never could buy a house. So I became fascinated with houses. So I've been all about houses since I'm 12 years old. So I love houses. I love working with people. I'm a much better consultant than I ever was a builder. I was a mediocre builder, but I'm a really good consultant. And I think it's because I get a lot of pleasure out of helping people be better. That's why I think I'm a good teacher. I like to teach. I like to share ideas. I like to look at things from a lot of different directions. So I think some of that's about who you are, but it's also about how you were educated, how you were taught, what you believe in. It's all, it's all, you know, nothing in life is, is one dimensional. Everything is multidimensional. I love that. And, and, and it shows, I mean, the reality is to be successful in life, you have to have passion for it, right? You have to believe in it. You have to believe in what you're doing. And as you mentioned, you have to be good at it, which, which you are, especially the consulting side. So, and, and maybe speak to, you were showing me now with just Excel, like that you're booked out. I mean, you're looking at next year, you're, you're, you're booked for the year with all your clientele. So managing all these clients on this comprehensive schedule, like what do you do for fun outside of, you know, the consulting day to day? So I love to fish. I like to write. I love to read. Like we're going on a cruise next week. I, I just went to the library. I got six books to read on the cruise. My wife's like, they weigh like 12 pounds. I, how are we going to, I'll figure it out. I'll probably only bring five of them. And um, the, like I would, I, I believe in integrating business and pleasure. So in the last two weeks, I've met with two of my clients. We went fishing together on, on one of the days I was with them. One day we fish, one day we work. I think if you, if you integrate education, fun into work, 
then then none of it's work. That's that's the secret, right? So, um, you know, my, my, I'm very inquisitive. I think a lot of it is about if you have an inquisitive nature. I, I when I meet people who have no intellectual curiosity, I find that so frustrating. Um, you know, like the other day, I said to one of my grandkids, like we're going down the street and a truck goes by with a huge piece of concrete pipe on the back, and I was like, "How much do you think that pipe weighs?" And my grandson's going like, "I have, I don't know." So, what do you think it weighs? I have no idea. Well, if I told you your life depended on telling me how much it weighed and getting close, how would you try to figure it out? I don't know. Okay, how long is it? I don't know. Look at it. Guess. I mean. This turned into a 20-minute interrogation. At the end, I'm explaining to him how much concrete weighs per, you know, per square per cubic foot. And do you know how long the truck is? That's a 40-foot trailer. So that pipe is taking up the whole trailer. So it's about four. You know, I'm always trying to get people to sort of think. I think it's, it's a lot of it's about, I think the greatest thing that people have is their brain. And, you know, use it. Otherwise, it's going to stagnate. So I'm trying to use my brain all the time. What do you think that well, way? This goes what do you think back that to, How come the sky's blue? Why? Yeah, that Yeah, that constant curiosity. What's interesting is you said early on in this conversation, you said, you know, to be successful and really what attributes to some of the success you had from starting Builder 20 and just throughout your careers, you've 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 listened, you've inquisited, you've asked about and 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 essentially saw what people are doing in other industries, right? What's McDonald's doing with their value meal? What's um, FedEx doing with their speed? And then by asking those questions, speaking with people outside of your network, outside of your industry, this is what changes your view on life, your perspective. The lens that you have on now, Al, is because you've been so, um, you've questioned so many things. You're, you know, you're engaging when you're speaking to people to learn about them, and then you can apply that, you know, in your vast array of life experience. Well, so my wife and I love to travel. We've been on 54 cruises, <coughs> 55 coming up <laughs> next week. And it's amazing. 56 in December, 57, 58, and 59 next year, already booked. So we've been to 72 countries. I've been to every state. I think if you open your eyes and you get to travel, then you unconsciously see and learn a huge amount. And then being able to use it and integrate it into your thinking that's the that's the part that I think is it requires a little bit of work, but some of it's if you if you're really sharp about it, some of it's unconscious. You can get better just by watching, just by listening, just by understanding, right? So, and I, I think love being that, Alan. Teacher, and you've been so gracious. Well, thank you. I think being a teacher. Go ahead. Being a teacher, I learn more when I teach than I ever learn at any other time. Like just just getting ready for the culture discussion for your club made my knowledge of culture better than it was ever before I did that. So I never give a speech that I don't spend at least, especially if, if it's even if it's a speech I've given before, I always spend 15, 20, 30 minutes reading it, thinking about it, going online, looking something up. What's, a, what's something new I could introduce? How does that relate to today? But then when I'm writing a new program, like I, I used to write it, I've spoken at like 29 or 31 home builder conventions. I used to always write a new program and buy a new suit. 
I would never give the same program. I would never wear the same suit. I just, I just, I couldn't be that guy. And so I would write those programs and writing the programs would teach me so much. I would do, learn so much as I researched the programs. And I would, like I said, what are you going to talk about this year? I don't got to think about it. I would talk to my clients and what do you, what would you like me to talk about? And I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the 15 functions of a home building company. Okay. It used to be 14, but now there's 15 because I thought of another one. And so writing that program made me so much better as a coach, as a, as a expert that I love to teach because every time I teach, I'm forced to learn. And every time I learn, then I'm better. And so since my goal is to be better, I guess I can't stop learning. I hope I learn something right before I'm dead. That's my big goal in life. Right before I go, I'm like, by the way, on the way out, let me tell you what I just learned. <laughs> well, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, just thinking through, you know, that wisdom you just shared about um, the, the constant grasp for learning and, and, and to your point that I can completely agree with, as you're teaching a subject, right, you're going to study, you're going to prepare, and you're going to learn so much about it, and it's so beneficial to you. And that's why everyone should look at different ways to become a thought leader or teach because they're going to learn the content even more than they already know. And, and that really continues to refine that. And then of course, understanding it, learning about it allows you now to implement it. And hopefully, you know, it carries through, um, you know, down the line. If I could share a 15, a one minute story. When I was teaching in the army, the first time they, I was a teacher, the first time I ever taught, I'd been to instructor training school. They told me what they wanted me to teach. I told them I'm ready to teach it. They said, are you sure you're ready? I'm ready. So I go in the room with the five senior instructors from, the, from this branch, and in 15 minutes, I'm, I'm a sobbing mess. I'm, I've been completely destroyed. They're, one's asking a question before I can answer it. The next one's telling me why I'm wrong. When I'm all, after 15 minutes, they go, Lieutenant, the net, when you're really ready, come back in the room and don't ever give a performance like this again. And I've never given a performance like that again ever since. I will never give a program and have my head handed to me like it was handed to me that day. <laughs> Sometimes it, we have to learn the painful way, right? It's not just handed over. It takes time. I, I, I thought that I, was, I, was, I felt so low. I didn't think it was possible to feel lower. Yeah, but I think that in retrospect, you look back now and right, you catapulted off of that. And, and those that learn from those experiences, right, and, and, and make those changes, I mean, they're much better for it. And, you know, Al, I just, I can't thank you enough. I know you have a tight schedule. You made time for us today, you know, and can't thank you enough. for. So for those listening, what do you have that's upcoming and exciting for us to be aware of? And then where can our listeners find you? So you can find me at, my website is, H-B-N-N-E-T dot com. We would say in the Army, that's Hotel Bravo November, November Echo Tango. H-B-N-N-E-T dot com. And my son, Brad, runs my office. If anybody wants some literature, you can go to our website, see what we have. We have a lot of other stuff that doesn't show there. Um, I wish I could help more people, but I, like you said, we're sending out our calendars for next year. We're coordinating next year's schedule. Um, I have a draft schedule, but people push and pull on it. It'll be finalized by the first of the year. Um, I've got a lot of things there you can get. 
Um, if anybody has a specific question you want to reach out, and if I have any literature I could send you or have a five-minute call to try to help you, I don't typically charge people for something like that. Um, I guess that's kind of that's kind of what I'm going to say. Here's a great quote to close with, by the way. A smart man makes a mistake, never makes it again. A wise man finds a bunch of smart men, never makes a mistake. <laughs> right? Finds a bunch of smart men, hires them, never makes a mistake. I, I'm not the wise man. I'm the smart man. That's how people, that's what people hire me for. You know, I, I already made a lot of these mistakes or my other clients have made mistakes. And so it's kind of like in any one of the 15 aspects of home building, we, we've seen some pretty stupid moves. And so a, a lot of being a good consultant is not only making you better, but helping you avoid the real problem, right? That, that in itself has a value. I'm like, don't do that. That's really dumb. Um, that, that alone, I think, is that's valuable. So, Brad, thank well, you very much for the opportunity. And um, anytime, buddy. I appreciate it. Well, Al, thank you again. Thanks for closing. And uh, cheers until we meet again. Thank you. Bye-bye. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.